This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Man, kids, if you're going to class, follow those people. It's like a it's like an exodus. Hope that doesn't mean we're going to die. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, glory, 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 we, we give your name. Lord, as we turn to your word, uh, we pray that you would show us your truth, that you would show us as we sang the solid rock on which we stand, show us your power and your grace, give us hope not in ourselves or our circumstances, but in you, your work, your promises, and your faithfulness. Lord, we, we pray you'd show us these things in your word, settle them in our hearts, and give us a new reason to glorify you again today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. morning. If you're visiting, don't worry. This is not normal. That's why everybody else seems lost too. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 this morning if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. Because you see there is a reason we've arranged our chairs this way this morning. About 500 years ago, things looked pretty bleak for God's church. Kind of like when you have children. All seemed lost to the tyranny of self-imposed dictators. About 500 years ago, the true church looked like it might be suffocated by centuries of rituals that had been piled on top of it by the Catholic Church. And to make things worse, people were told that they were too ignorant to read or interpret the Bible. And to ensure they didn't, the Catholic Church made it illegal to translate the Bible out of Latin. Until a Catholic monk named Martin Luther came along. See, Luther spent his days studying the Bible. That was his job. Until one day, after several years of this, God revealed to him that the church he served didn't line up with the Bible he was reading. In fact, in many cases, Luther realized that the Catholic Church was in direct conflict with the Bible he was reading. So out of a, a genuine desire for truth, Luther wrote down 95 things that he wanted to discuss. Just discuss. And he uploaded them to the, to the chat room, which in that day meant he nailed them to the doors of the church for everyone to see. But little did Luther know that his list would ignite the raging fire of the Protestant Reformation. So fast forward several years, 
and one of the hallmarks of the newly formed Protestant church was a return to the Word of God as the sole authority in the life of the church and her saints. And to that extent, many of the newly formed churches rearranged their their sanctuaries to symbolize their view of Scripture. In other words, some churches elevated their pulpits very high in the air so that, that the preacher actually had to go up a flight of stairs to get to the pulpit. And this was to symbolize the authority of the Word of God. But other churches did something different. Some churches moved the pulpit out into the middle of the congregation as a symbol that the Word of God was at the center of their church and therefore their lives. So once once a year, to celebrate the Reformation, we move our pulpit out into the middle of the congregation as a tangible reminder that God's Word is still at the center of Cedar Springs Church and therefore our lives. What does that have to do with Revelation 1? Well, for starters, just like in Martin Luther's time, the church, when when John wrote Revelation, things looked pretty bleak for that church as well in the the first century A.D. Look for me, if you would, at Revelation chapter 1. Just look at the very beginning of verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation... So so by the end of the first century A.D., Christians were already being persecuted heavily. You see, emperor worship was in full swing at this time. Meaning the Romans said, you can worship whatever gods you want, so long as the emperor is one of them. For example, around the time uh, that John wrote Revelation, oh, and by the way, the penalty for not worshiping the Roman emperor was death. Around the time that John wrote Revelation, a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger wrote a report, basically, to the emperor Vespasian, no, Trajan, describing this persecution. Basically, Pliny wrote a report describing how after he had arrested some Christians, he brought in some statues of the gods and a bust of the emperor, and demanded that those Christians worship those gods. And then in this letter to the Roman emperor, Pliny went on to describe how he crucified the Christians who refused. In other words, it didn't take long for the, for the first church to realize how true Jesus' words really were when he said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And brothers and sisters, whether it was 2,000 years ago or 500 years ago or yesterday, this hatred of Christians hasn't changed. The church has always been and always will be in peril. The Catholic Church in Martin Luther's time wouldn't hesitate to execute people for things like reading their Bibles or saying that the Pope was wrong or saying that that we don't need to go through priests or, or for sure not dead people to talk to Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is our only mediator. They would get killed. And friends, 
We are experiencing the birth pains of this kind of persecution. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but I mean, we're really not being persecuted that bad. Perhaps. But I would suggest you think about this question. Are you not being persecuted because you're not being persecuted? Or are you not being persecuted because you're hiding your faith? For example, I would challenge any of you to ask this question at your next mandatory workplace sensitivity training. I dare you to ask this question of the instructor. Is the point of this training that we must not discriminate against the LGBTQ community? Or is the point of this training that we must say they're right? That we agree with them? I dare you to ask that question and then decide whether or not you're hiding your faith. Maybe you're self-employed. Maybe the only sensitivity training you have to attend is when your wife says she's, you're not listening to her. <laughs> Even if that's you, our culture is quickly becoming comfortable with violence being the acceptable response toward anyone who disagrees with them. Anyone who is against the LGBTQ community has their life ruined at the least if they're not violently attacked. Violent mobs have destroyed property and attacked people because of our, our nation's terrible history with slavery. And recently, terms like Nazi and extremist and a threat against our lives, those kind of terms are becoming acceptable labels for people who don't fall in line. Now, I know for most of us, you mix one part American and one part Christian, and you get someone who doesn't mind being a little rebellious. But here's what I want you to think about. How long is it going to take for our culture to finally realize that everything it hates, that everything it's attacking is actually Christian? How long is it going to take for our culture to say, you know, it's mostly Christians who say the LGBTQ lifestyle is wrong. And, and all those statues we tore down, most of those guys called themselves Christians. You know, now that I think about it, everything we hate is basically Christian. What's going to happen when our culture finally connects the dots and realizes that there is a specific group toward whom they can direct all of their violence? Whether that happens today or tomorrow or a hundred years from now, I want to convince you this morning of the same thing that John wanted to convince his readers 2,000 years ago. I want to convince you this morning that there is a reason that the church will endure. There is a reason the church will endure. Look again at Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom 
and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So if you've ever wondered what the book of Revelation about is about, here it is at the very beginning. Look back at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's it. In other words, the book of Revelation is not some wild description of, of crazy future events that we don't need to worry about till we get there. No. The book of Revelation is about the tribulation the church is in right now. The kingdom she will eventually be brought into and therefore the patient endurance that she can and must have in the meantime. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And so to begin, John is told to write what he sees. So what does he see? What did John see that explains why the church can patiently endure while we're, this tribulation while we're waiting to, to get to the kingdom that has been promised to us? Well, ironically, verse 17 tells us that what John saw was terrifying. Look at verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now to have any chance of understanding what John is seeing here, you need to understand this. When John says, son of man, he turned to see someone like the son of man. He's not describing the male child of a male human. It's not what he was describing. Look closely again at the middle of verse 13. John says, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. One like a son of man. So John is not describing an actual man, but someone, a being who looked like a son of man. In fact, John is seeing someone who was first described by the prophet Daniel. Daniel was the prophet who had a sleepover with the lions, if you don't remember. But Daniel also had a bunch of really weird dreams. And one of those dreams went like this in Daniel chapter 7. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to paraphrase. But Daniel had a dream that began with him seeing four terrifying beasts. You can put that down for a minute. He said the first was like a lion that had wings, but it stood and walked like a man. The second, Daniel said, was like a bear that had ribs in its teeth, and it was told to devour everything it saw. And not ribs in its teeth like you got done eating, you need a toothpick. Ribs in its teeth like it's eating humans. The third, he said, looked like a leopard, but it had four wings and was told to dominate the earth. But the fourth, Daniel said, was exceedingly terrifying. 
He said it was stronger than all the others. It had iron teeth and horns that had human eyes and mouths. And it broke into pieces everything that stood in its way. Now, you know when you have a, a, a bad dream, and you wake up, and it takes a second to reorient yourself to, to, to figure out that it, wasn't a, it was just a dream? Well, what if that wasn't the case? What if when you came to yourself, you were told that it was real? That's what happened to Daniel. Daniel was told that those beasts he saw were the world powers that were going to ravage the earth. Nations like Assyria and Persia and, and Greece under Alexander the Great. So how excited would you be to go back to bed? Daniel did. And he had a different dream. After dreaming of these terrible beasts, that night he dreamed of the Ancient of Days. And he described his power and how he destroyed all those beasts without even trying. It's almost a footnote in the passage. He described the Ancient of Days and he's like, oh yeah, those beasts, they're done. But then after Daniel described the destruction of those beasts... He said this in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. He said, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, unlike those other kingdoms that were destroyed. Shall not pass away, and his, kingdom on that, and, and his kingdom on that day shall not be destroyed. So I want you to see two things when we look or think about what's going on in Daniel chapter 7. First, Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days, when he described this Ancient of Days who destroyed these beasts, is nearly identical to John's description of the Son of Man standing in the midst of the lampstands. Therefore, second, the Son of Man John is seeing is not a human male, but the terrifying description of an exceedingly powerful God that reigns in authority over the most violent men and kingdoms that have ever existed, even those who were persecuting the church during John's time. That's who John is seeing. Look back at Revelation 1 and let me show you what I mean. And understand that John isn't trying to give us a literal description of what this Son of Man looks like, meaning the Son of Man doesn't look like a scary version of Santa Claus. He's doing the best he can to describe what he's seeing in terms that he knows. For example, at the end of verse 13 tells us the Son of Man had a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. This is John trying to describe the authority of the Son of Man. He's saying, this is the one who demanded the universe come into being and obediently it leapt into existence. This is the one who the lightning strikes and says, I'm over here. And he says, okay. Then the first half of verse 14 describes the Son of Man's white hair. And again, John is not saying that the Son of Man needs help getting out of his chair. 
No, he's saying that the Son of Man has, has ancient wisdom that we cannot comprehend. Wisdom that precedes the foundations of the earth. Then John says at the end of verse 14 that the Son of Man has eyes like a flame of fire. And again, he's not describing this, he's not saying like he is Superman. No, he's saying the Son of Man can see right through you. Like a refiner's fire exposing the impurities in the ore. Every deed, every thought, every intention that you've ever had cannot be hidden from the gaze of the Son of Man. It is exposed. And it's why people like Isaiah, when they met this Son of Man, said, I am being uncreated in your presence. Then John says in verse 15 that his feet were like burnished bronze. That just means hard, refined. And his words like roaring waters. This is the Son of Man's destructive power. Anything that's not destroyed by his voice will be crushed by his feet. In fact, later in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, John said that this Son of Man will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And guess who will be the grapes? Not what, who? Those who don't call him Lord. Then in the middle of verse 16, John said that the Son of Man has a mouth like a sharp two-edged sword, which again in Revelation 19 tells us that he will use to strike down the nations. In other words, the Son of Man doesn't need a gun or a sword or a bomb. He simply needs speak the words and man ceases to exist. And lastly, John says the face of the Son of Man was shining like the sun at full strength. This is just a description of His perfect purity and holiness and righteousness. So it seems to me that John had a very appropriate response. If you look at verse 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Yep. I, I, if you read the whole book of Revelation, I think John must have got some carpet burn on his face. Because he's constantly just hitting the ground. That's what happens when you come into contact with a God like this. Imagine what John was experiencing in the presence of that power. I often ask myself, and some of you have heard me ask this, I wonder how many millennia we will just spend on our face in heaven. Until the MC says, okay, you can get up, we'll start now. But then he hears, fear not, I am the first and the last. I wonder if John's thinking like you're not making it better when you say, fear not, I am the first and the last. However, I would imagine that the only thing more frightening than the sight of the Son of Man is disobeying Him. And so John quits quivering and listens. And this exceedingly terrifying Son of Man says to him, he says, fear not, beginning in about halfway through verse 17. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, brothers and sisters, the first reason that the church can endure, the first reason that the church will endure is because the great son of man 
has the keys to death and Hades. The reason the church will endure is because the great Son of Man holds in His hands the keys to death and Hades. Which means that we know now that John is seeing the risen and ascended and glorified Jesus Christ. See the King who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let, let, the, let the soldiers hold and nail Him down so that He could save them. Feel the earth is shaking now. See the veil is split in two as he stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. But see the empty tomb today, because death could not contain him. Once the servant of the world, now in victory reigning. He is the one who died and now lives forevermore. He is the one who has the keys to death in Hades. And he is the one who promises his people that death cannot hold them as long as he's on the throne. Brothers and sisters, we can endure anything, anything the terrifying beasts of this world throw at us because the worst thing they can do to us is expedite our reunion with our Savior. It's the worst they can do is expedite our reunion with the one who will meet us at our death to unlock the chains of sin that have held us our entire lives. The one who will set us free through our permanent and eternal restoration to the presence of himself and the ancient of days. It's the worst this world can do to us. The church can endure. Because that son of man, the son of man who holds the keys to death in Hades, will be waiting for us to free us when we die. However, you might be thinking, that's great, Grant, but what about now? I mean, I, I get that knowing something will happen in the future can give me hope, but what about right now? Well, the answer to that question actually comes in the form of another question. Look back at verse 12. John said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. The question we have to ask ourselves is what are those seven lampstands in the midst of which John said the Son of Man is standing? We'll look down at verse 19. It's explained to us. Jesus continues, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, brothers and sisters, the reason the church can endure is not only because the Son of Man holds the keys to death in Hades, but the church will endure because this exceedingly powerful Son of Man is in the midst of His churches right now. This Son of Man is in the midst of His churches right now. Saints of Cedar Springs Church, listen to me when I say you are in the presence of power. Right here today, because the risen Christ, the one whom the grave could not hold, the Son of Man is here right now with us. 
Listen to how S.M. Lockridge describes the one who is in our midst right now. He said, quote, He stepped from behind the curtain of nowhere onto the platform of nothing and spoke a world into existence. The reason God came from nowhere was because there wasn't anywhere for, for him to come from. And coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing. And the reason he stood on nothing was there was nowhere for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach and caught something where there was nothing to catch and hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. Then standing on nothing, he struck the anvil of his omnipotence with the hammer of his sovereignty, and he caught the sparks that flew therefrom with the tips of his fingers and flung them into space and bedecked the heavens with the stars. Brothers and sisters, the church can endure because that's whose presence we are in this morning. There's still one more thing I want you to see in Revelation 1, though. Look back at verse 19, and I want you to look closely at what John is commanded to do. It says in verse 19, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. Now look closely back at verse 10 and 11 again for the same thing. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He heard a voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see, in a book, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What is John supposed to do? He's supposed to write what he sees in a book and send it to the churches. Who did John describe in the book that he sent to the seven churches? It's Jesus. So think about this. How is the exceedingly powerful Son of Man in the midst of His churches? The Son of Man is in the midst of His people in part through the book that you are holding in your hand. It's not some mystical thing. It's not like we got to do something and, um, and we'll somehow come and... No! He's right here. This is not just pages and ink. In your hand, you hold the power of salvation that comes through the power of the Word of God. This book changes lives. In other words, the way we've arranged our sanctuary this morning is not a stunt, it's a symbol of the truth. The truth that you and I are in the midst of power this morning through His Word. It is the power of salvation to those who would believe. Brothers and sisters, we can endure because the frighteningly powerful Son of Man is in our midst. He is with us. He's with His churches through His Word. Listen, fellow saints, I know that it can seem like the world is winning. You watch, as, as the, you watch the news and, and it feels like evil is gaining ground every day. We watch as, as sexual perversion seems to overrun our culture and even our families. I know some of you feel powerless as you watch 
some of your children sinking helplessly beneath the waves of sin. I know some of you are watching the coming elections very closely, hoping, just hoping, for, to see some vestige of our nation's morals and common sense. So what are we supposed to do? The answer, brothers and sisters, is, is as profound as it is simple. We're simply supposed to believe. We're supposed to believe. So what the Bible says, the righteous shall live by faith. For example, some of us need to answer this question this morning. How many times is God going to have to come through for you before you believe He's with you? How many times is God going to have to come through for you before you quit freaking out when something goes wrong? We are to live by faith. Faith in the evidence that we've seen, not only here, but in our own lives. This isn't the first time the church has been, has appeared to be fighting uphill. This isn't the first time God's people appear to be losing ground. And, and, and this certainly isn't the last time it'll, it'll appear like the church is being defeated. But brothers and sisters, therein lies the falsehood. Therein lies the deceit. Saints of Cedar Springs Church, the reason the Son of Man is in the midst of His churches, reigning in power and glory, is because the battle has already been won. There is no appearing like we're losing. It's already over. What gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer? There is no more hope for heaven to give. Love's redeeming work is done. He has fought the fight. The battle is won. Let me put it this way. Parents, your God can dangle your child over the pits of hell as long as he wants until you give up, until you quit, quit trying to control them and trust in him to do what only he can do. Fellow citizens, your God is perfectly willing to bring this nation to its knees and then to its end if that's what it takes for His people to put both their feet on the solid rock of Christ. But listen, as scary as that sounds, just like Daniel in his day, brothers and sisters, it is in the lion's den where we will find our Savior. It's with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's in the fire where we will find ourselves in the presence of our Lord. And therefore, just like them, we will endure. We will endure because ultimately the Son of Man holds the keys to death in Hades. But right now, when you walk out of this building this afternoon, brothers and sisters, we will endure because the exceedingly terrifyingly powerful Son of Man is in the midst of His people right here today. He is our stronghold and shield in the midst of every threat.
Though the wicked never yield, they will vanish like a breath. Yes, I know the outcome's sure. Satan's evil plans will fail. In your power, we are secure. He is our solid rock and salvation, our steadfast hope that won't be shaken. Our soul will wait. Our soul will wait for you. Because you're our comfort when we feel forsaken, our refuge and our sure foundation. Our soul will wait. Our soul will wait for you. Do you believe that? If you do, please stand and let's make that our response to our Lord.